Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Wednesday. We're talking some USC football recruiting, favorite topics, especially this time of year, with Gerard Martinez, uh, national recruiting analyst for uscfootball.com. He's been doing it for 11 or 12 years or so. Does an amazing job. Uh, follow him on Twitter at GMart Live, answering all your questions on the Peristyle. That's our premium message board on uscfootball.com. He's on there pretty much 24 hours a day answering all your stuff. So, you know, he'll play a little Call of Duty every once in a while, but mostly on the Peristyle. Did I get that right, Gerard? No. You got two <laughs> things wrong. A, Call of Duty, don't play that. B, often <laughs> it's Gerald Martinez that is the one answering all the questions on the Peristyle. He's often the one that posters want to hear from the most. Hey, Gerald, what's the scoop? It is funny how, I mean, People that have names that you kind of confuse a lot, you know, you know, you know people like that. It is amazing how many people still, and you don't know how many are joking because it becomes its own thing. But Gerald, it becomes a, such a popular name for you as opposed to Gerard. Yeah. It's a meme now. It started <laughs> with, in, in, in reality, when it was like really became the funniest joke is when, uh, Jim Clausen senior was referring to me as Gerald Martinez. Uh, to, in the third person, other people, he was telling other people like, Hey, you know, Gerald Martinez is a real good guy. I really, I really like his stories. And people would come back, Rick Kimball and Greg Biggins and some of the other writers would be going, yeah, talk to Jim Clausen senior day. Yeah. He really likes that Gerald Martinez guy. <laughs> and, uh, so that was like the beginning of it. And it just, uh, spiraled out of control since then. It's a little bit crazy. Um, but that's okay. You know, we love it. We embrace it. We embrace it all here at the Peristyle Podcast. Uh, this is our Recruiting Blast Podcast. If you have questions for us, podcast at uscfootball.com. All of our contact information is on uscfootball.com. Um, so you can check it. I mean, I'm sorry, uscfootball.com, but also our website, peristylepodcast.com. We have a lot of our um, podcast information there. We're on iTunes, itunes.com slash Podcast. And uh, we're actually going to do a live version, kind of a live podcast, but it's our live uscfootball.com show. This will be Thursday, uh, December 8th. So hopefully you're before this, you're, you're listening to this before that Thursday, December 8th at 4 PM Pacific time. Uh, if you go to our Facebook page on uscfootball.com, uh, it's, it's facebook.com slash uscfootball.com spelling out the dot dot. But if you just search for uscfootball.com, it should show up, but we'll do a live show with Dan Weber and Keely Ewer and myself and talking all about USC football, but it'll be video too. So you can kind of see us and we'll respond to questions live on that show. So Gerard and I used to do this show back in the day. There was a little more equipment stuff involved. It was kind of a pain in the butt. So I've, I think I've got it a was pair a lot down. of work. It was a lot of work back then. It was a ton of work, but I think, I, th- I think it was worked well. We had a lot of great guests. We had like Ed Ordron and T Martin and Matt Barkley and Robert Woods and a whole bunch of dudes that were like, they would come do our, sh- do our show. So hopefully we can get some more of these guys, Let's get it going again, you know? 
Yeah, Bryce Butler. No, I mean, we had – it was way before its time, that show. I mean, we – the amount of work that we put into it, and I think the viewership we got out of it wasn't balanced, and that's why we stopped doing it. But I could see us doing it again because people start to become hit to it. They're able to watch it maybe because broadband is, is easier to get and probably people have faster Internet speeds nowadays. There's a lot of is- issues that come up with video and why people don't watch more video um, Scout for a while wanted to be more of a video network. Obviously, that's not happening anymore. But you know, video is constantly that thing that is you know everybody's chasing as far as content and how to make video better and how to make video more accessible to people. And it's just time. It's just technology. And uh, certainly with phones and everything, and now you can watch video uh, much more easily. I think um, those type of shows will become uh, more in demand. Yeah, we do these quick live uh, Facebook things from like post-game or halftime and stuff, and they go over pretty well. This will be certainly more of a production value. We'll have more uh, camera angles and more people and better audio quality and stuff. So it should be pretty cool. So just uh, 4 p.m. on Thursday, facebook.com slash uscfootball.com. We post it up on our message boards and stuff, too. We'll tweet it out. Follow me at Inside Troy or GMART Live for Gerard. Um, Well, it's that time of year, Gerard. So we need to get more recruiting uh, shows going. So we have to talk more recruiting. You know, we can take a couple weeks off during the season or during the off season, but now it's pretty much recruiting all, you know, all the time. Of course, everyone's excited about the Rose Bowl. Uh, but recruiting is really starting to heat up now. Um, maybe kind of get your thoughts, you know, to start with. We have a few topics we want to get to and then the questions about USC making the Rose Bowl. And do you think that's going to have, uh, much of an impact on the class of 2017 or would it be more felt you know, maybe the class of 2018 or beyond. Yeah, it's it's more of a cap to the season. I think uh, the accomplishment of being able to turn around this season uh, to win the games they did in the fashion they did, certainly it would close the season out strong, and you want to win the Rose Bowl. You want to be able to, you know, have that trophy, and it would be Clay Helton's first big trophy. It would be uh, monumental for the coaching staff as a whole, but how it impacts recruiting, it sort of is more of one game. Obviously, if you go out and you play really badly and you get blown out by Penn State, it's not a good look. But I think if USC goes out there and they play well, regardless, it's still they've built up enough momentum now with recruiting that they're going to get some guys. Um, how many guys they get, you know, how far reach will they be able to have, I, I still i am not 100% sure. I, I still am very skeptical that they're going to be able to really pull guys like defensive tackles, you know, Marvin Wilson, a guy that's a five-star that's out of state from the South. Those guys were hard for USC to recruit when Pete Carroll was on his role. When USC was, you know, going to back-to-back national championships, uh, they were recruiting the SEC. They were recruiting defensive tackles and a lot of players from the South. And it just seemed like certain positions, it was very difficult to be able to draw those players. And so even now with USC, while they're trying to get to a point where they can say that they are one of the top teams nationally year in and year out, it's still going to be a very big mountain to climb to be able to sign multiple players like that. I think you're looking at certain skill positions. You might have better um, luck and and. You know, it's a different coaching staff and, and different recruiters and everything, but I think, you know, some of those guys that you're pinning your hopes on out of state still going to be difficult, whether they win a Rose Bowl or they don't win a Rose Bowl. And it's, it's one of those things where USC has got to be able to develop a system of 
okay, we need such and such amount of players that we can develop, we can bring in our system. They may be projects out of high school, but we're guys that we know we can build up and within a couple of years can actually contribute to the football team. And certainly you look like a guy like Christian Rector. I think that's a perfect example of a kid that you bring in that's a more of a local kid, not an SEC kid, uh, but a defensive lineman who was a good athlete, played at a, at a good, solid program there at Loyola High School, came out about 6'5", 6'6", uh, you know, about 250, almost 260 pounds. But now you're looking at a guy that's the 280, 290 pounds, and he's a guy that can really contribute to the football team, and he'll be a player for USC next year. Um, is he going to be a first-round pick? Is he going to be one of those guys that, you know, is a Leonard Williams-level type player? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean he can't still help you with football games, and especially if you've got three or four of those guys you can bring in and rotate, and they're playing fresh every down. Uh, that's kind of sort of where USC, USC has to get to. They, they, you know, we always talk about that brick and mortar. Yeah, some of this class is going to be some mortar guys. It's really the big question right now is, you know, who are those big bricks? Who are those big five-star shiny guys that uh, you can kind of, um, you know, recruit around and, and sort of the centerpieces to some of these positions of need? And that's just it. Just kind of remains to be seen. They they came together and closed really strong as a staff last year with a lot more challenges. Certainly, when you didn't have a full time staff for much of the year at this point in time right now, USC didn't have a defensive coordinator. They didn't have a uh, defense back coach. They didn't have a defensive line coach. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of things, and they were still able to close with a really good class last year. So that's why I'm hesitant. That's really the main reason I'm hesitant is just the way things came together last year. I'm hesitant to say they can't, they can't, they can't. My feeling, my vibe is, yeah, there's going to be certain players that are just not going to be attainable. But, again, you do hesitate because of what they did last year, and this year they're in a much better spot uh, to be able to close with what they've done on the field and certainly the cohesiveness and the stability of the coaching staff. Yeah, I think certainly that all that's going to help. Um... It'll be interesting to see these last uh, several weeks before signing day how USC finishes, and I think how they play in the Rose Bowl will have uh, an impact in there as well. wanted to talk, Gerard, about uh, your most recent piece, and you did uh, inside the 2017 USC football target list piece up on uscfootball.com for subscribers. Um, so definitely check it out. It's, uh, it's great stuff. But you put up every month these target lists for the offensive and defensive players and, uh, you know, the, the piece, you don't need to go into too much detail on it, but just maybe give people a, a preview of kind of what you're talking about inside that piece. This was just an opportunity to kind of dive into the moves that are actually made within the board. And, you know, every month we put up the target list and some months this, there's a lot of movement and it sort of doesn't mean a whole lot. We can go back into the spring and May and nowadays with colleges, scholarships are just given out like crazy. And, and there's not a lot that's necessarily behind them. They may offer three or four kids, and they're just guys that have been seen on film. They're just names, really. And there's really not a lot of background to them. There's not an angle. Uh, sometimes USC offers a kid nowadays, and there's no follow-through even on his recruitment. So there's not a whole lot in terms of substance there. It's sort of superficial. And we always kind of let people know that, you know, there's going to be certain points in time during the recruiting process where the recruiting is superficial, and it doesn't mean a whole lot. But when you get into that November, into November, these moves start to become more significant. And certainly the amount of players that are at certain positions, who they have offered, who they're bringing in for visits, 
some of that stuff needs to be kind of explained. There needs to be context. And, you know, why is this certain player being moved up in terms of his level of interest? Why is this player being moved down? Um, there may be a player here that's committed that isn't getting a lot of communication from USC. And that's not always explained on the target list. We kind of had a conversation on the peristyle the other day, whether it was the decommitment of Daniel Green, 6'2", 225-pound linebacker from Portland. He'd been committed to USC since the summer. Uh, he's a guy that has some great issues, but USC kind of took a waiver on him. Uh, but I could tell kind of coming out of the summer going into the season that there was kind of a, hmm, we're not really sure if this guy is going to really make the class or not. Uh, for various reasons, and I won't go into detail about that, but I had a good idea that maybe he wasn't going to be a part of the 2017 class. So you have a guy like that that's committed, and he's strongly committed because he likes USC, he wants to go to USC, but it's a two-way street. You know, USC, there's that, that interest level, you're looking at it from USC's perspective, and then you're looking at also at the prospect's perspective. So these kind of cases, when you get into the later parts of the recruiting process, sometimes need a little context, and there needs to be a little bit of explanation as to why things are happening and why there may be certain moves. Another good example, and was kind of uh, the feature uh, prospect in that piece, was Bubba Bolden. Bubba Bolden, 6'3", 210-pound safety from Las Vegas, Bishop Gorman High School, a guy that was committed to USC very early in the process, big USC fan, but he decommitted from USC over the summer. He decommitted because he felt like he didn't have a good relationship with the coaching staff, and he felt that he was, he was developing a better rapport and relationship with some of the other coaching staff that were recruiting him, Colorado, Arizona State, and wondered, why do I have a better relationship with those staffs when I'm committed to this school? So he decommit. Now it seems like USC is back within his top two. He just announced, uh, Greg Biggins wrote an article uh, talking about that he's really kind of narrowed down his decision to uh, to uh, Ohio State and to USC. And USC looks like they're in a really good position. So we're moving him back up to being having high interest. Anytime a kid basically has USC in their top three, that's when we consider him high interest. Medium is there's a potential that he's going to take a visit to USC. When they have low interest, we're basically looking at a kid that uh, is probably not going to officially visit USC and or USC is starting to cool on. And, and again, we're talking about that interest level always being a two-way street. And sometimes the conversation as we had in the peristyle and going back to Daniel Green is not necessarily tipping the hat of what guys who are committed or what guys may have high interest in USC, but that interest level may not be reciprocated by USC. And it's not really my job to necessarily <laughs> indicate that and get ahead of the process, and all of a sudden I'm basically outing a kid that may not know necessarily that he might not be a part of the class um, and sort of report that ahead of time. So you've got to be careful. You don't want to become a part of the process. You don't want your inside knowledge of things that are happening to necessarily leak out and get ahead of the game and, and cause problems uh, either for the prospect or even for the schools recruiting them. So um, it's one of those things that, you know, this kind of piece adds context and gets a little deeper into the moves. It's more than just a bunch of names and lists of who's got interest and, you know, who's got offers. It's kind of going further than that and trying to explain some of these moves and what might be coming. And I guess just give a better idea and more insight into the here and now of the recruiting process with that list. All right. Uh, well, let's jump in and talk uh, talk to some of the, the fans, Gerard. Talk about their questions. 
They have concerns, Gerard. They want to know what's going on, the future of the USC football program, and they are turning to you for answers. Are you ready for their questions? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So this first one's from Jarrett. He said, for the Gerard Show. Uh, so I guess we're calling this the Gerard Show. The Gerard Show. <laughs> um, I think he just met the, the Gerard podcast. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. But yeah, and it, I do appreciate that. If you do send a question in, we do a bunch of shows. Let us know if there's a particular person you want to answer. It could be me or Gerard or Dan or Harvey Hyde or Shotgun or Kayla, whoever. Um, send it in. Let us know who you want to you know, uh, answer the question. But this is for the Gerard Show. In regards to the defensive front seven, can USC recruit the South? It appears that defensive tackles grow on trees in SEC country. Do we have the quote-unquote connections or the draw to lure those 17-year-old grown men to Southern Cal? I know we recruit uh, Florida pretty well, and California has a ton of skill, uh, but not really the toughness. If you could round uh, – if you could – Round of some names. I'm not sure what he means there. If you could round of some names of California kids that do display that kind of play I'm talking about, please do. Uh, thanks. Appreciate the information from Jarrett. Well, Kenichi Ndizi might have something to say about the toughness in California kids. Mike Patterson as well, Sean Cody. Um, I think, and we've talked about this before on podcast, the big difference between the South and the West when it comes to linemen specifically, but I think in general prospects, the kids out here are not as developed as early on as kids back east. And I don't know what why that is exactly. I don't know if it's something in the water. I don't know if it's something in the birth certificates. But you see a lot of kids when you go back east, and particularly in the south, and they're, they're pretty much ready-made college players. They look like they – have been playing college, and they should be playing college ball right then and there. I mean, I think we talked about the story of Bo Scarborough, uh, the running back at Alabama, and we saw him at the uh, five-star challenge in Atlanta, and he was a grown man. He, he was like he was a college player. and But that guy is kind of the guy that you see now. The problem with that is, is those guys don't really develop a whole lot more in college. Um, they're already built up. They're already trained. They're already weight trained. They're already, you know, the size and the weight that they're going to be and really those guys don't necessarily develop a whole lot more. Whereas you come out west and you get a guy like Clay Matthews Jr., who came from Agora High School and was a guy that uh, was 190 pounds. And, you know, before you know it, he graduates and he's on the same level of a guy like Brian Cushing, who was a four-star or five-star guy coming out of high school who everybody pinned to be uh, a first-round pick. And so it's just the difference between the development time. Those kids that are from California, they will develop, and we've seen it time and time again. It's just a matter of having the program and having the right people to get them in the weight room and just giving them time to be able to do that. So I don't think USC has to or needs to recruit the South uh, for defensive linemen. We were just talking about in the intro a little bit of just about the recruiting process and sort of USC winning the Rose Bowl and what their reach will be. You know, will they be able to go after a guy like Marvin Wilson? Will they be able to go into the South and get those defensive tackles? Well, history tells us no. No matter how many national championships USC's winning, there's not going to be a lot of those guys that are going to be interested in, in coming out to California. A lot of those guys are mama's boys. Let's just be honest about it. I mean, no matter what you have to offer – they kind of want to stay close to home and stay close to their families. And 
you know, maybe somebody will throw out, well, what about Leonard Williams? Leonard Williams was from Florida. When, when did Florida not become a part of the South? Well, Leonard Williams was originally from Southern California. He was born out here. He still had family out here. There's a different story. He, he wasn't kind of the, the, the Southern, deep Southern kid that you're recruiting from Louisiana and Houston and Alabama. He was from uh, Daytona Beach, and he also had a, a real close connection to his former coach, Kenyota Hudson, who also got a job at USC uh, as a part of the support coaching staff. So there's some context there, again, that you have to kind of keep in mind. So uh, is USC going out to the south, and they're going to get all these guys that are, that are southern guys um, that are defensive tackles and, and be able to load their roster up with, with those guys like LSU does and Alabama and, and those schools? No, they're not. And will they be able to even cherry pick? Again, going back to the Pete Carroll era where USC was winning a lot of games, it was very difficult. There was a lot of guys that they offered, and they just didn't get them. And that's not just even the Deep South. We're talking about Gerald McCoy. We're talking about Marvin Austin. There was a lot of guys from just east of Texas that were hard to get that USC you know, was going all out for and had positions and needs and all that kind of stuff, and it just didn't happen. So they were still able to win games, and I think a lot of that had to do with developing local talent and being able to project that talent and find those guys like Christian Rector who might be 250, 260 pounds coming out of high school, but you know within a couple of years they're going to be 290. And then you kind of have to see what their ceiling is going to be and if you can make those guys into you know even better players and players that are on par with maybe some of those guys that were five stars out of high school. So um, you want you know names of guys that USC is going to recruit locally to be able to do that. I mean, I don't have them all right in front of me. I, I know for for sure that Terrence Lang is a guy that a lot of people are earmarking as a guy that a lot of potential who could end up being on par with those four-star, five-star guys when he gets in the weight room and starts focusing solely on football. He's a basketball player, 6'7", 285 pounds, uh, out of Marinassa High School, plays at a very small school, especially in terms of football, but it is a very good basketball program, and that's his first sport. So once he gets into the weight room and he starts really focusing on football, you, you know, the sky could be the limit for this guy. I mean, his athleticism is great. He's got great feet. He's obviously got a big body. He's one of those guys that, you know, he could end up being a, a great player. But you got to project that, and you kind of have to know, like, okay, we have to do certain things to build him up within our system for in order for him to be that guy. He's not that guy just coming right out of high school. Um, so it, it's going to be a class with mostly projects and guys that USC has to sort of develop from the West Coast, in my opinion. I think that's really where they're going to get the majority of their guys, and that's going to be from here on out. Um, and then, you know, you're trying to cherry pick, and it's just a matter of how successful they can be at doing that. It's going to be difficult. It's Like I said, I go back to, you know, what we saw with Pete Carroll and Ed Ergeron, and, I mean, they had some great recruiting classes, but they – we're not built on uh, southern defensive tackles or defensive tackles out of state just in general. So that's going to be the big challenge for USC. All right, good stuff there. Let's uh, go to Frank in Vegas. He says, thanks for being the eyes and ears for us, USC football fans who are out of the L.A. area. If USC extends a scholarship uh, to a JUCO transfer, that counts as one of the 25 for that year, I believe. It certainly does. Um, but the JUCO player will only have one to two years of eligibility left when he starts at USC. That doesn't seem like a good deal for USC unless they think uh, they will have more than 85 great players on scholarship in a year or two. Is there anything different about a scholarship to a JUCO transfer that lets USC recycle the scholarship earlier? Keep up the good work and fight on Frank in Las Vegas. 
So recycle it earlier. I, I, I'm not 100% sure I understand the question. I, basically, a junior college transfer, that scholarship is there as long as they have eligibility, and you're recycling that you know, within two years or three years, depending upon how long they're at the college. Uh, the difference is sort of how you stagger your cycles and your eligibility with certain guys. USC is going to have two junior college transfers graduate this upcoming year here, and Daquan Hampton and uh, Isaac Whitney. And so both those guys they brought in the same year, and they both had the same eligibility. I think they had three years to play two, but they played their two years, so they didn't use red shirts. And, I mean, Daquan Hampton had a big game there uh, against uh, UCLA. That was obviously a big deal. Uh, but we haven't really seen as much as Isaac Whitney, and we knew there was people that were very high on Isaac Whitney, uh, especially coming out of um, – uh, it was a Riverside City College, I think he came out of, and then uh, Dequan Hampton came out of LBCC. I think the thing about junior college players, more than anything, uh, first of all, you're getting a guy that's a man. You're getting a guy that's developed, and it's a plug-and-play type situation, uh, sort of like Stevie Toyokolovatu, where you're bringing in a guy that can play right away because physically he's capable of playing right away. When you bring in a high school player, nine times out of ten, you know there's going to be a transition dealing with the physicality of a guy that's coming out of high school playing against maybe a fifth-year senior. You never know who you're going to line up against. It might be a guy that's, you know, 20-something years old. And there's obviously a disparity there just physically. And so with junior college player, what you're getting is a quick solution to a need. And obviously with Stevie Toy Kalawatu, you bring in a guy that was a, a very good player. And he was able to just be plugged in there. USC loses three starters in the defensive line. And he's just a plug guy, like, boom, here we go. We don't need to develop this guy. We don't need to coach him up. We don't need to do a whole lot. Basically just kind of show him our scheme, and he can play from day one. And that's just the focus with the junior college player the same. You're looking at a guy to bring in that has that maturity, and you're willing to stagger your cycle a little bit and kind of you know change things up because you have that two to three years. Or in Kulavatu's, um, you know case, obviously it's just that one year. Um, and, and then you have to re-recruit that position again. And that's where USC is now with the defensive line. I mean, it was great to bring him in and to plug him in for this past season because he played up to par and did all the things that they were asking him to do, and it made you forget that they lost Antoine Woods and they lost Delvon Simmons and they lost uh, Claude Pellon. They lost those guys. Well, that didn't seem like a big deal when they were beating uh, you know, Washington and UCLA and, and, and Colorado and all these schools because you had Stevie Toy Colorado there. The same thing happens if you want to bring in another Juco guy for the season. With the defensive line, it's easier to do that because there's less to know in terms of playbook. Defensive line is really more about playing defensive line. It's more about technique. You don't have to know all these other things that everybody else is doing on the field. It's kind of like do your job. You know, just this is all you have to do. And your job is not going to be that much different than the last place you were, whether it was in high school, junior college, or another college. It's pretty much going to be the same. You're going to rush the passer. You're going to have to run fit. You're going to do the same things that a lot of other defensive linemen do. And so it's not that much in terms of the mental side of things, being able to transition and plug in right away. Um, so that that's really the biggest deal about, you know, junior college players is just you're bringing in that physicality, and sure, you have to sort of stagger a little bit. It can kind of screw you up in terms of, um, you, you know, you, your cycles and who you're recruiting and who you're bringing in, uh, but it's a quick fix solution. You just have to be aware that sometimes guys in junior college can reinvent themselves a little bit. And you get a guy that comes out of high school who's a mediocre three-star player, 
but he's still a legitimate, you know, star on the high school level because you're looking at three-star guys. People have to realize when these rankings are done, a three-star guy isn't three stars out of every high school player in the country. It's really a three-star guy out of all the really good all-American level high school players out of the country. It, it's it's really a ranking based upon that sort of top 1%. And so that guy is still pretty good. He goes to junior college, and you're getting guys in junior college level that they're not really going to play football in college. You're getting a lot of guys that you know might have been okay in high school. It's not the same thing, the level of competition. It doesn't all come together the way people think. And all of a sudden, this guy at the junior college level who is eh, three-star, okay, all of a sudden becomes this great player in junior college, and people are going, wow, oh, my gosh, I mean, he's so good now. And then he gets to the college level, and it's like, yeah, he's still that guy that was kind of a mediocre three-star. He's bigger now, and, yeah, he's stronger, but all the other guys that he was in high school with that graduated from high school at that same time that went straight to college are just as big, and they're bigger and faster, and they're better. And so you have to be careful. Sometimes guys do evolve, but sometimes guys sort of reinvent themselves and become these prospects that – I don't know, people's minds race, and they go, wow, this guy's going to be so good. And it's like, no, he's so good because he's at the junior college level. And the competition has not necessarily um, – it has not scaled evenly with uh, with his talent level. Makes sense. All right. And just so people know, that 25 scholarship, that's an initial scholarship. You get 25 of those every year. And then the overall is the 85. So, um, yeah, you're, you're using an initial – uh, and you're going to likely have to use another initial two years down the road or whatever. Um, but you know, once that JC player leaves, you free up a, an overall scholarship, you free up one of the 85. So, um, yeah, it was a little confusing on the question, but hopefully, you know, that answers it to the, to the best of our ability. Um, Kenny had two questions for you, Gerard. Do you think USC could sign the number one offensive line class in the country? Yes. I think it's very possible. Um, I think they're a little underrated. Uh, I think there's some guys like Andrew Voorhees that are probably better than rated. And I I have to look at Ohio State because I know they've got a phenomenal class right now. Um, I'd have to look at the numbers from some other schools. You know, there there could be, you know, Tennessee is always sort of infamous for over-signing guys, and they could end up having a class of seven offensive linemen and from a from a you know a, a statistical standpoint and how they're going to rank classes then you know Vols would end up with the number one class but in terms of quality and and the players of need and everything of certain falling together I, yeah definitely I think USC could have the number one class and then a the second one he said with taking Jack Sears did SC give up on trying to flip uh, to a Tagovailoa um, love the podcast keep up the great work from Kenny. Yeah, I think uh, Tua Tagovailoa is not in the cards anymore. I, I think USC is pretty happy with Jack Sears. I don't think you would want to screw around with that situation and recruiting another quarterback um, when he sort of fits exactly what you need, what you want. And, um, you know, I, I think they'll take that all day. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's uh, anything else in, this, in the cards for USC as far as that goes. We have um... – Former five-star quarterback, a cornerback, and an Alabama transfer, Kendall uh, Shepard, is playing at a junior college, has three years of eligibility left. Sources say that he's been in contact with USC as well as other schools. Uh, do we have a real shot at landing him, having him as well 
as a Janie Harris, Big E, Jack Jones would be a very good secondary with Cooks and Tell uh, at the safeties. And I didn't write down the name, so I'm sorry. I don't know who sent this one, but I didn't write it down. Kendall Sheffield is the player of question. He's at Blinn <laughs> Junior College. He's a Missouri City, Texas kid. Actually went to Fort Ben Marshall. And USC recruited him as a five-star cornerback out of high school. And there's a good example of a guy that didn't reinvent himself in junior college. He was a really good player coming out of high school when he was signed with Alabama, but he wanted to transfer out of Alabama and not have any restrictions, so he went to junior college. Alabama did try to put some restrictions on him, but him going to junior college kind of, you know, basically that, that sitting out that year um, removes any restrictions of him not being able to go to a school. And with that said, Texas A&M and Ohio State are, from what I'm hearing, his top two, and USC's probably out of it. So chances are pretty slim right now. Very good player. Um, his film at Blinn was really, really good. The rap on him coming out of Alabama uh, from just people I was talking to was that he just wasn't very physical. And Nick Saban is very big on defensive backs who can come up and tackle. We've seen that. USC saw that firsthand in that game in Dallas. Uh, very physical secondary. And the rap on Kendall Sheffield was he wasn't very physical. He was more of a finesse corner. But watching his film at Blinn, uh, he comes up and he nails some guys at the line of scrimmage. I mean, he actually is pretty hard-hitting and very physical, and so I, I think that sort of sour grapes may be coming from Alabama. It looks like he's a guy that's going to be able to come in and definitely give good run support as a cornerback. Uh, but right now it looks like it's probably Texas A&M, maybe Ohio State. He sort of made a mistake, I think, going to Alabama at first. It surprised me he actually picked Alabama because – his dad is very much a part of his football career. He's very much part of the recruiting process. And usually when your family is that involved with you, um, it's just better off that you stay closer to home because they want you closer to home and they want to be involved and they want to go to practices and they want to go to games. And that really wasn't going to happen with him at Alabama. So, you know, USC was in there, took another official visit uh, in the beginning of November. Uh, we didn't really hear much from that official visit and uh, then took an official visit to Ohio State. His parents did go to him on that official visit, so that's something to know. But it would seem to me that Ohio State would be just like picking Alabama again. I, I wouldn't see where it would be personally for him, I think, a good fit. Uh, he's also looking at TCU as well, so that's another in-state school that maybe he could pop up at. But it looks like USC is kind of a long shot. We have uh, Ted Manhattan Beach. So he wrote in talking about the stipends that schools can give athletes based on the cost of attendance. And uh, it was kind of like an offline thing. So maybe you want to talk about that. But he followed up that and said, if USC has a deficiency in the stipend amount, what can be done to level the playing field? Man, I don't know. I, and I know it's something that the coaching staff has talked about it when it was originally uh, the numbers were released, um, and you had like Tennessee, and I, I can't remember what all the numbers were, but it was like, I don't know, Tennessee was I think both $3,000 a month or something like that, and USC was like the $1,200 a month or something. It was very, very big discrepancy um, among some of these schools, and obviously that's in addition to cost of living, and certainly when you live in Southern California, uh, you and I are both California poor. Um, if you and I lived anywhere else in the country, quite frankly, outside of probably New York City, um, we could both have much bigger houses and <laughs> more stuff. It's just the cost of living in Southern California is ridiculous. Cost of living in California is ridiculous. You go up to Marin County, um, San Jose, a lot of those areas, even Northern California, it's, it's ridiculous. So um, I don't know. I, 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 to me, it would seem like if the NCAA wants this even cl- playing field, 
then they should have sort of a cap on it, right? Or they should say that, you know, hey, this school should be allotted more. Um, they could be able to pay more uh, because the cost of living is more. Um, that's never seems to be taken into account. You know, the NCAA is all about evening playing field, but it seems like they're more about evening the playing field for the small colleges that are in the college towns and not necessarily uh, just across the board when you have schools like Miami or, or Rutgers or these schools that are in bigger cities uh, that have to, you know, have their own setbacks and challenges in terms of how much money they can spend and what they can invest in the football program. But what, saying that, saying that the NCAA should be involved with regulating this, there's also the fact that USC could pay more. I mean, they could have bigger stipends, and they don't right now. So um, I don't know. I, I don't I just – I don't know enough about what setbacks are and why they're not paying more. And again, sort of the NCAA's stance on it and, and compliance and, and how that all figures out. I'm sure there's some very long convoluted explanation for it, but I just don't have it. Okay. Uh, let's move on from that. Yeah. There was well, a, apparently Ryan doesn't either. No, I don't. There was a, <laughs> there was just a bunch of topics about it and it's just like, you know, there was other, you know, schools come up with the cost of attendance number. There was some algorithm, and then people yeah. are talking about, but I haven't really heard much about that since. So, uh, it doesn't cost seem- of attendance is also a big deal. I mean, that's something that you have to consider. I remember when Shea Patterson's recruitment was going, and he picked Ole Miss, and you know, Ole Miss, I, it, it, it was a lot. Let's just say it's a lot cheaper to go to Ole Miss than it is USC. <laughs> so, you can say that you're giving up, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand um, dollars to go to Ole Miss. And where does that money, where is it made up, um, you know, when you're going there over a program that normally if you had to pay out of your pocket, you'd be paying that much more like USC uh, or Notre Dame or Michigan or something that was on par. Um, so, yeah, you do get a lot more in terms of the cost of the education at USC, and perhaps that's what they're looking at. They're saying, you know what, you can go to Tennessee, um, you can go somewhere else, and you can get this big stipend, but you're also not getting that amount of money in terms of your education and your degree. At least that's, I'm sure, how USC would rationalize it uh, to anybody asking for more money in the stipend. Yeah, uh, but I, I, I haven't heard it much coming up around here, like, oh, this is a big deal, that you could you would go here over there because of that stipend. I mean, I don't think you've heard it much either, have you? No, um, and it's definitely one of those things that you're, you know, are you getting a few thousand dollars here and there as opposed to, you know, what is that degree going to get me, you know, after I get out of college and I want to get a job uh, or the opportunity to go to a school where I have a platform to be looked at and evaluated by the NFL. I think that takes precedent. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Bear Secutor said Gerard, not Gerald, he said Gerard, uh, please compare Myron Wilson uh, with the big cat and Darnay Holmes with a Dory. And are these guys good enough to start next year at USC? Myron Wilson? Was it Myron Wilson? He wrote Myron Wilson. Myron Wilson? Maybe getting Myron uh, Tagovailoa confused with Myron Marvin Wilson. I, I would assume it's Marvin Wilson. Um, how does he compare with uh, Leonard Williams? Not they don't compare. They're different players. Uh, Marvin Wilson is a nose nose tackle. I mean, he's a 330-pound, big centerpiece guy. Takes up um, multiple blocks. Uh, he's going to be uh, just a clogger in the middle. Uh, fairly good pass rusher. 
Um, definitely a guy that I think has a little more work to do before he is an impact player in college than people assume. You know, he's number one defensive tackle, I think, in the nation. And he's a guy that's been kind of marked as that for a couple of years. But having seen him in person and watched him play specifically just at the opening where you're in pads and you're doing a lot of pass rush drills, uh, that offensive line at the opening handled the defensive line. Uh, just across the board, we're talking about um, Haskell Garrett. We're talking about uh, Greg Rogers. We're talking about all those top defensive linemen outside of J. Tufeli because J. Tufeli actually got hurt first day when they weren't in pads and didn't really do a lot of one-on-ones in pads. So I kind of have to take him out of the equation there, and he's kind of sort of my top guy right now. I mean, I haven't seen a guy that's been more impressive to me than J. Tufele, but Marvin Wilson had some good reps, and then he had some really bad reps. He got worked a couple times. And like I said, that's not necessarily something that was exclusive to him. Uh, Greg Rogers was beat probably more majority of times than he actually won reps. Uh, the defensive line as a whole was pretty much controlled by the offensive line. And I don't know if that says a lot about the offensive line and how good they are in that class, or it speaks to how bad the defensive line is and how overrated some of these guys are. So I don't know. But Marvin Wilson definitely has to get in shape. He has to uh, be de-recruited a little bit because I think he's been through the process long enough that, you know, he's got a lot of people kissing his ass, and sometimes these kids come in and they're a little uh, full of themselves. And I think he's probably going to be one of those guys that you'd have to bring in and you'd have to humble a little bit, and that's just going to be a process. Um, compared to Leonard Williams, just different type of dude. Leonard Williams was a 255, 260-pound guy coming out of high school. He was a three-technique that was playing a lot of defensive end, really, in high school. He was violent at the point of attack. He was a guy that could shoot the gap, could make a lot of plays in the offensive backfield. He was fast enough where he made plays away from his own assignment. Different player, totally different player. Longer, leaner, more athletic, just a different kind of guy. Marvin Wilson is just a big, strong, quick guy that's playing more in a phone booth that you put right in the smack dab in the middle of your defense and you kind of let people play around him. Um, now, well, who's the second guy that D asked me about? Oh, Darnay Holmes um, in comparison to Dory Jackson. Uh, similar in that they both would fit a similar role for USC, and I think Darnay really could be plugged in at that spot, playing both ways, being sort of an athlete, uh, being a guy that you know can play corner but has the explosiveness and the ball skills to be able to play in the slot and you can move him around and make him a big playmaker and a guy that definitely sort of is a guy you have to scheme against from a defensive standpoint. I think you know there's not a lot of guys that you could just recruit the next year and plug in and he'd be that guy and he could do all those things. Darnie Holmes is definitely that guy. Now, comparing the players, and not necessarily how they would fit in at USC, but the players, Adore's a little bigger, longer, um, more of an athlete, I think, at this point in time in his career than Darnay Holmes. Darnay Holmes is a better football player. He's a more natural football player. Um, he's not the track kind of sort of played basketball, do this, do that, sort of everything, and you kind of have to teach him football, and you have to sort of see if he has those instincts with football. Darnay Holmes has that. He's a football player, and he's probably a little quicker, um, definitely a little more physical at the point of contact uh, than Adore Jackson. And, again, he's been playing football longer, and he's been sort of more football solely focused, and so that stands to reason. Um, you could argue maybe Adoree has more upside, but I think people kind of fall in love with Adoree's upside, um, the potential because of the track and because of the things he can do athletically. 
Uh, but the consistency there, obviously, with the Dory is something that the NFL scouts are questioning, and that's going to be the big question of Mark when he gets drafted. I, I think he's a first-round pick. I think he gets in there, but I wouldn't be surprised if he sort of falls a little bit because the inconsistency and, and you know, does he really have the nose and does he really have the focus to be a cornerback in the NFL? And that's what he does and only what he does. Um, I think with Darnay, there's less question about that. I think he's more business-like. He's very focused. Dad played in the league, and he's a guy that uh, certainly there's not going to be a lot of questions about. It's not potential with him. Like, you know what you're getting, and you know what you're developing with Darnay, and I think it's just a little more easier to project him. Gotcha. All right. And uh, I think that's like four or five questions. We've had two names that were written incorrectly. Hey, if you're going to send in a question, please <laughs> get the name right, because I'm just going to read what's up there. And then Gerard's like, who is that? And we're like, oh, we, then we got to figure yeah, it I out. Yeah, I think, I mean, I figured out, I mean, Kendall Shepard was, was, was easy, um, you know, still, Kendall Sheffield. You know. Uh, but sometimes you get names, there's like a first name with another guy, because there's also Marvin Tagovailoa. Amosa, who is the defensive tackle from Kapaloi High School in Hawaii, who just took an official visit to USC, we did an update on him. So, and he's a defensive tackle, so you could sort of go, okay, compare him to maybe uh, Leonard Williams. Although I, I, I guess that's probably not it, just because Leonard Williams is such a highly thought of player. You're probably not going to ask, you know, what is he like compared to this three star from Hawaii? That's my assumption. We uh. I had a couple questions on running backs. Um, Tarek wrote in, is there a real chance that Najee Harris signs with USC? I don't want Alabama to have another Derrick Henry with a frowny face there, but also a question about um, cars listed as a soft verbal. If he's not coming um, and USC is only going to sign one running back, who are they most likely to flip if Carr isn't coming? And he mentions Harris, uh, Ahmed from Washington or Lund from Stanford. Yeah, I think most likely they get Carr. I don't think that Carr's going anywhere. I think that he wants to be at USC. His family wants him to be at USC. He's got a good position there at USC to play next year. Um, I don't see him going anywhere. And with Najee Harris, you know, it's tough, man. I it, We don't know 100% if he's going to visit this weekend. He's made overtures that he's going to visit USC, and we've even had some inside information saying that he would be there this weekend, but he still has a Michigan trip that he could also make. He uh, wants to visit another school, too. I think it was Ohio State, but he's supposed to be a mid-year grad. So really he has this week, and that's it. And then you've got a dead period, and then we're in the dead period all the way until I think January 11th. So... I don't know when these visits are going to come. It's not 100% that he's going to even make it to USC this weekend. Uh, it's it's all, you know, that's just one of those recruitments that's um, kind of hard to figure out. And there's a lot of people that feel like he ends up staying close to home. I mean, we've heard that throughout the recruiting process that at the end of the day, you know, Alabama is just too far for him. But I, I just don't know if that's true or not. I, it's, it's really hard to know. Uh, you get people saying one thing and you get people saying another and you're trying to really gauge your sources and how close they are to the situation more than you are, is this true or not, you know? And so that's where we are with Najee Harris. I think that would be really kind of the only guy that they would bring in as a second running back to uh, Stephen Carr. Um, now, if they were to get him committed, would it actually drive Stephen Carr away? That's a good question. There's a possibility there. I know there's people around Stephen Carr that would be sweating bullets that would probably be in his ear saying, do you really want to go there with Najee Harris there? 
Steven himself, I think, is pretty confident in his abilities. I think he likes USC, and I think even with Najee Harris there, he feels like he could have a spot and he could still get carries. And certainly SC would still, you know, recruit him and say, look it, we want to bring you guys in and we want to rotate and we want to keep you guys fresh. We, You know, the one thing about running backs, and, and this is always sort of in the back of their heads, is that they wear out, and the NFL looks at that. The NFL looks at how many carries these guys are getting, and they don't want to get a guy in the first round who's carried the ball so much that he's basically a broken-down running back, and they're only going to have for two or three years. And that's sort of why we've seen running backs sort of jump to the back of the line a little bit with the power positions in the draft. Um, if you get a guy that's, you know, obviously like Ezekiel Elliott, you know, that, that they feel like, hey, man, that's a guy that is going to be a, a feature back, the, the draft will will kind of shift accordingly and, you know, franchises will jump up to try to get those type of guys. But um, as a whole, sort of running backs have sort of been pushed to the back of the line. Um, so, I mean, you could sell that and say, look, you know, we're going to re- – we're going to recruit both you guys, and uh, we're going to have you in here, and, and you're going to be able to basically have fresh legs by the time you're out in three years to be able to get drafted. Uh, but for those guys, yeah, they're going to look at carries, and I could see that being more of an issue with, with Stephen Carr and driving away Stephen Carr. But that's, like I said, if Najee Harris goes to USC, he comes in this weekend, has a great time, decides to sign with USC, which would shock a lot of people and surprise a lot of people. So I'd have to say it's, you know, certainly um, a moderate long shot at this point. Uh, and then, you know, it'd be sort of, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it with Stephen Carr. Um, all right. That's the running back talk. We have one last one. Our buddy Dan, uh, he's in the USC class of 1962. Uh, he keeps saying Dan from 1962, but then he tells me, no, that means class of 1962. So I have to kind of add that myself. But you are the class of 1962, Dan, and we'll never forget it. He says, thanks for the heads up. Uh, about Gerard being on the podcast as your next commentator. Uh, it's great to be able to address questions to a particular commentator. Well, we glad we you can do that for you, Dan. He said, uh, Gerard, can USC invite recruits to the Rose Bowl game? If yes, which recruits will be attending or taking an official visit during the Rose Bowl weekend? Also, how would you rate Matt Fink's progress this year as a scout team quarterback compared to Sam from last year? No, they can't have official visitors uh, at a neutral site. So, you know, whether it was a bowl game or even a game like uh, the the game at Dallas Stadium, the Cowboy Stadium, you can't have visitors there uh, on an official visit or visiting for the school themselves. Um, they can come to the games, obviously, uh, but that's something different and entirely different in terms of who's paying for it and everything like that. Um, for the second question, uh, what was the second question? I have already forgot it. The um about Matt Fink and the uh, oh Matt Fink yeah yeah that just in out one ear out the other okay. um <laughs> Matt Fink uh, has improved um in terms of comparing him to Sam Darnold I don't know that's a hard question I think the biggest issue still with Matt Fink is going to be his arm strength and sort of how the offense that he runs you you call plays around that um. Sam Darnold's got an arm, and he can chuck it downfield. And you see, even now, his his delivery is not always great. Um, I think he throws off his back foot way too much, but he's got a big arm, so he can get away with it. I think once he sort of gets centered in and he steps into his throws more, he's going to be that much more lethal. He's going to be that much harder to be able to break the ball on. You, you get the defensive backs to kind of read and and make a good break on the ball. If you got a really good quarterback and you got a 
receiver that run in a really good route, it's impossible to stop. It's just impossible. It's really not possible to to get in front of a ball if both of those things are on point. And Donald's got the arm, and you get some receivers, a guy like you know Deontay Burnett, who's a really good route runner. That's a machine, man. That that's hard to stop for any defense. And so I think that's always the big thing about Darnold, just that inherent ability to get the ball from point A to point B with a lot of velocity. Matt Fink doesn't have that. But Matt Fink may have some intangibles. I would say in comparison to Sam Darnold, the one thing we won't see about Matt Fink until he actually gets in the game situation is ability to scramble and his ability to get out of pressure and escape and continue to extend plays. He has a little bit of that ability. He's not as quick and as strong as Sam Darnold right now. Um, He'll never probably be as quick as Sam Darnold, but he actually is faster. I mean, he's a guy that if he was to run read option and get a seam, he can open it up. He's faster than Sam Darnold. That guy's a gazelle. He can legitimately outrun people. Uh, but you're not going to see that so much in practice. And that was the thing when we were looking at trying to compare Max Brown with Sam Darnold. It was always in the back of my head you had the intangible that Sam Darnold could escape and could scramble and can run, and you just don't see that in a practice situation because the quarterbacks aren't live. So, again, that's something that you're just going to have to wait and see with Matt Fink if he gets that opportunity to get in a game. How does that aspect of his game uh, impact the offense positively, and how much can that make up for maybe not having the big arm? Um, One thing I wanted to, to pick your brain on, Gerard, before we let you go, um, not a lot of, uh, coaching carousel stuff on the West Coast. Um, there's been some moves, uh, you know, uh, San Jose State hired, uh, the receivers coach from Oregon State. Um, but, you know, Oregon being the big job that was open and they get, uh, Willie Taggart. Uh, they're going to bring him, uh, to Oregon and looks like it's going to change. I mean, I think his offense is more of a downhill running kind of thing. Uh, I think he's known like as an offensive guy, but it's not the kind of, you know, spread offense that they've been running, um, and, you know, kind of made famous with Chip Kelly and all that. Uh, I don't know if you had the time to, to look at it much or get any thoughts on it, how it affects USC and the, the, the recruiting landscape. Yeah, I don't know a lot about Willie Taggart, uh, to be perfectly honest and upfront. I do know that he originally came to USF with a little more of a Stanford mentality and they wanted to run more of a pro system. He was a running backs coach, I think, at Stanford when Jim Harbaugh was there. Uh, but he changed that system up and actually fired, I think, his offensive and defensive coordinators at some point and started running a little more of a spread system. So he certainly isn't a system-run coach, which is interesting because that's obviously what Oregon is basically based their identity around outside of you know alternate uniforms and Nike. It's been the Chip Kelly system, the we go faster than anybody, you know, we get more reps during a game than anybody, and and we're going to run this certain system, and it's going to be our system, and that's sort of what everybody kind of thinks about Oregon. They just think about no huddle and the up-tempo offense. Obviously, other teams have now caught up to that in terms of, you know, other teams running it and the scheme sort of being out there and, and other teams duplicating it. And so it's not that sort of oddity that it was when Chip Kelly was head coach, uh, but it's still – you know, Chip Kelly was a very system-oriented coach, and Willie Taggart is not that. Uh, supposedly a very good recruiter, um, but you know, you got to be a, a, you got to be a really good recruiter up there in Oregon, and because <laughs> you're not going to have a lot of inherent advantages uh, with getting kids uh, from that area, you're going to always have to kind of recruit outside your area. 
so we'll see how that works. Uh, again, they're, you're not going to be able to necessarily sell a system. Um, it's going to have to be, you know, they're just going to have to find out a way to win. He's just going to have to be a really good coach, and that in itself is going to have to sort of attract kids there. And then on top of it, obviously, you know, pile on lots of uh, Nike gear and all that good stuff with uh, various colors of, of uniforms and hope that, you know, that sort of makes the thing happen. I, I Again, I, I think, not to, not to take us off into an, a tangent here, but, you know, Oregon has always sort of been like facilities and, and Nike and all that kind of stuff. And, and obviously, like I said, with Chip Kelly, the thing that sort of separated them was that scheme, which was different at the time than everybody else was running. And it was obviously successful. I think nowadays the arms race is not with the facilities, and it's certainly not with alternate uniforms. It's with the support staffs, and it's with the coaches, and it's with how that is developed from from the, the, the core of the program. And I think that's where the arms race is. I just think that's where, you know, Alabama, Ohio State, and everybody, they're getting these full-time coaches, these head coaches, these guys like Sark and guys like Mike Loxley, and, and bring them into the program, and they're like an auxiliary uh, coaching staff. And so with all these moves, it just kind of reminds me, like, the, the teams that are really investing in football, that's, I think, sort of where it's coming into, and it's really with the support staff and sort of the full-time coaching staff having another coaching staff to rely on to fill in the gaps, whether it be with recruiting or off-season training. That's sort of where it is all at. So the big deal with, you know, Oregon's got all these facilities and the locker room and Nike did this – I think it's diminished over the years. And, and and just obviously like, you know, Chip Kelly and that whole uptake, fast pace, you know, breakneck speed offensive system, it sort of diminished because everybody started running it. Eventually you get a bunch of copycat systems and a bunch of copycat coaches and everybody's running it. And it's just, when you see it, you know, four or five times a year is a big difference between only seeing it once a year. You know, that's always the thing with Navy, even Navy, like people don't, really like to play Navy because you don't see that wing T system very often. And even though it's an archaic system and it's old and it's been around for generations, it's still an oddity because not a lot of people run it. So when you see it, you got to like that, t- that one week is basically the only week you have to prepare for it. You're not going to run because you only see it one week. And so that always makes it an oddity. So Chip Kelly had that at Oregon, Oregon had that system and they had a, a coach that was basically the architect of that system, or at least one of the pioneers of that system. And now you're kind of going the opposite direction. You're kind of bringing in a guy that, as a coach, seems to be a little more of a figurehead, a little more of a, you know, Clay Helton type of guy, because Clay Helton certainly isn't a guy that's an architect of any particular system, even though he was an offensive coordinator, uh, which I don't know if Willie Taggart's actually been an offensive coordinator ever. Uh, but with Clay Helton, he was an offensive coordinator, but didn't really have a specific type of gimmick or scheme or system you know he wasn't Mike Leach he wasn't Sonny Dykes he wasn't Art Bryles he wasn't one of those guys that's running like this type of system and it's his system and he has the secret to that system and a lot of schools fall in love with that a lot of schools like that a lot of people are talking about where does Charlie Strong land where does Lake Kiffin land and if they're up for the same job I mean the US, USF job is up now who do they go, Lane Kiffin or Charlie Strong? I kind of think, and I'm not trying to make a prediction here, but I think a guy like Lane Kiffin actually looks more attractive, even though he's had maybe less success as a head coach, because he has a system, because he's an offensive coach, and he's sort of developed this hybrid pro-college system. And I think a lot of employers, even when you're looking at the pro levels, 
fall in love with a guy that at least he's got a system. He's got the X's and O's. He's got that. A lot of people talked about that being a a kind of a, a positive with Clay Helton uh, being hired over Ed Ergeron. Um, Ed Ergeron really wasn't an X's and O guys where Clay Helton was. I don't really totally agree with that, but that's sort of the thinking because Clay Helton was off to coordinator, yada, yada, yada. And I think with, with, with a guy like Kiffin over a guy like Strong, you're talking about X's and O's and you're talking about a system of swords, and a lot of people sort of fall in love with that. There's like a security blanket in that. As long as you've got the coach that's got the system, then he's got the formula to winning. And so it's, it's interesting to me just because Oregon's going away from that. They're going towards, you know, the, the figurehead type of guy who's supposed to be a good recruiter and sort of hoping that they can bring in enough talent and hopefully it just creates something in and of itself. Obviously, it would just be interesting to see what coordinators they bring in because that's going to be a huge deal considering that Taggart's not really, again, one of those X's and O's guys. Good stuff from Gerard Martinez, uh, uscfootball.com. Longtime contributor. Uh, contributor. He covers uh, USC recruiting better than anybody in the business, but uh appreciate you coming on, Gerard. Really good stuff. And uh looking forward to seeing you out there on the boards. Oh, yeah. You'll see me on the boards. I, like you said, on the boards 24 hours a day all the time. And not that playing is, Call of Duty, right? What, what's your game? That is, no, not Call of Duty. We, I play Division a lot. I play Division, but not no, not Call of Duty. That's uh, that's for kids. Divi- oh, really? Division, is that a first-person shooter? Is it like a... It's actually a third-person shooter. I actually had a debate on Twitter with Antoine Woods about uh, Call of Duty over Division. <laughs> so uh, he, he liked Call of Duty, and I was like, dude, you gotta, you got to put your big boy pants on and play Division. Man. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, I don't, every time you I like buy Division. Him. Division is a very statistically driven game, and you are all about statistics, or you're sort of like statistics. You know, you've been an electrical engineer, so you're a little more about numbers. Um, I'm actually not good at that stuff, but I get by. Gotcha. All right, well, Division, check it out. Uh, if you don't, you don't see Gerard on the boards, he'll be on division talking online to 15 year old kids and telling them why he's blasting them away or whatever. I don't know what he's doing, but, um, all right. Gerard Martinez, follow him on Twitter at Gmart Live. I'm Ryan Abraham. Follow me at Inside Troy. Hope you guys enjoyed this edition of the Peristyle podcast, Trojan Blast USC recruiting podcast. Don't forget Facebook live will be on Thursday at 4 PM live from USC with Keely, Dan and myself. So hope you enjoy the show and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.